one more episode on Canto 15. I told you I was going to do an episode in which I got to disagree with myself. <laughs> it's a dream come true. But one more episode in which I get to voice my own opposition. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk passage by passage through Dante's work comedy. But this is not about a passage in comedy. This is about the entirety of Canto 15 and an assumption I made and confessed to in the first episode on this Canto way back, what was that, five or six episodes ago? I told you that I thought that the sinners punished in this Canto and the next one, the 16th Canto, too, are the homosexuals. But I told you that was an assumption. Now I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to voice the opposition and tell you what it is and why maybe I have overread the canto at this point. There's no passage to read. Let's just get to the argument. Why do I think these are the homosexuals in Cantos 15 and yet to come, Canto 16 of Inferno? Well, it goes all the way back to Canto 11. If you remember, Virgil lined out the map of hell or drew the map of hell for the pilgrim in Canto 11 of Inferno. And when he talked about this circle, this ring of the seventh circle of hell, the third ring, remember the seventh circle where we are is in three rings. Those violent, it's all the sins of violence, those violent against their neighbors and their neighbors' possessions, those violent against themselves, that is suicides, and against their own possessions. And then here, those violent against God. And we were told that there were three classes of people in this third ring of the seventh circle, the ones who were violent against or toward God. We had the blasphemers. And then Virgil said those guilty of the sins of Sodom and Cahor. And I said Sodom is clearly a reference to sodomy, and so therefore, thus the homosexuals. And Cahor was a notoriously usurious banking center. Well, it was a large banking center in France, but notorious for its interest rate charges. And so these are the various people punished here, the blasphemers, the sodomites, and the usurers. And later at the end of that canto, Dante asks, the pilgrim asks Virgil, um, can you explain to me why usury is such a bad sin? And if you remember, Virgil launches into an entire theory of art and how art is sort of the child of nature in the same way that nature is the child of God. And I think right there, we can again say something about homosexuality, that we have the blasphemers who are directing their ire toward God, like Capaneus stretched out on the sands. And then we have those who are violent against nature, God's child, that is, the homosexuals who are unnatural. Yes, I know. It pains me as a gay man to say that, but there you are. And finally, Cahor, who are violent against art, which is the child of nature or the grandchild of God. And I tried to explain to you that part of the problem here is that both usury, charging interest on loan money, and homosexuality is the attempt to make something out of nothing. You're trying to be a creator, trying to create ex nihilo out of the way God creates, out of nothingness. There's no way to have a baby with gay sex. Sorry, don't mean to be vulgar, but there you are. And there shouldn't be any way to make money out of money. You're trying to do what God does. You're trying to create ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so both are these sins punished amongst the violent. Okay, so that's why I say they're the homosexuals. I also say that they're the homosexuals in Canto 15 and 16, because there are so many gay themes like 
twinning that I've gone on and on about, or student-teacher relationship. You know, Boccaccio claimed that this entire canto actually comes down, the 15th with Brunetta Latini, actually comes down to a condemnation of teachers who prey on their students. And he he particularly pushes this with Priscian, the Latin grammarian from the 500s, but he implicitly states that kind of through the whole canto itself, that this is a common problem. Teachers prey on their students, and of course we're in the Middle Ages, so all teachers are male and all students are male, and they prey on their students. So homosexuality is hmm, part of the condemnation of the universities, of the scholarly class. And finally, why do I say it's homosexuality? Because we came past that phrase last time that the poor guy was (laughs) there with his stretched for evil flesh. And remember I told you this could be translated all kinds of different ways, but they all seem to add up to some kind of very vulgar sneer about gay sex. Given all of that, that's why I see it as the homosexuals. But not everybody does. And particularly in the 20th and early 21st century, hmm, lots of people don't. So let's look at why they don't. It starts with André Pézard. André Pézard is a French dentist that was, he's now unfortunately long gone to, well, either his punishment or his reward if you're Dante, but he's long gone off this plane of existence. And in 1950, Pesar wrote a book, Dante sous la pluie de feu, Dante under the rain of fire. And this is about the 15th canto of Inferno. In this book, Pesar posits that these are not the homosexuals. And this book was such a bombshell that it still causes ripples in the pond of Dante's scholarship. Let me tell you what Pesar's uh, argument is. And this is now voicing the opposition to my whole interpretation that these are the homosexuals. One, Pesar claims that Priscian, remember the Latin grammarian of the 500s, was a notorious defender of Greek phrases in Latin. You know, this would be like somebody who um, is defending English phrases in modern French and, you know, would be seen as, oh, God, what, what, what? We can't say those words. Or, you know what? In the 19th century in Great Britain, there was a good deal of push to get rid of French phraseology in English. For example, the word employee came into English from French. And in the late 19th century in Great Britain, there was a big movement to to not use the word employee, to use the word the employed, because employee came out of French and we don't need a fussy French term. Well, Priscian defends fussy Greek terms in Latin. Okay, just hold that in your brain. Now we're going to pass on to the second person that Brunetto mentions running with him on the sands, and that's Francesco da Corso. Francesco da Corso was the author of the Great Glosses. Wow, did I say enough about glossing in this? Okay. Anyway, the author of a text called The Great Glosses on the Pandex of Justinian I, the Pandex, the di- the Digest. This, this is the bit that Justinian I, the Byzantine emperor, wrote, the 50 volumes he wrote, essentially codifying Roman law. He was a, a Byzantine emperor, but at this point, the, he was ruling the empire from the east. And he wrote the Pandex. We would call them the Digest, this 50-volume work. And Francesco da Corso, the jurist from Bologna that we talked about, wrote a commentary or glosses on these pandics. 
And one of the curious things about a Corso's work is that he puts a great deal of weight on papal letters and papal instructions. In fact, more weight on papal letters and papal instructions than on the writings of the church fathers or even the New Testament. Hold that in your brain. Let's pass on. Andrea de Mozzi. Remember, he's the third one that Brunetto points out on the sands. Andrea de Mozzi was a favorite of Pope Boniface VIII. And one of the things that Andrea de Mozzi was known for was using his skillful rhetoric to malign the Pope's personal enemies. And he wrote all kinds of treatises in which he used very highfalutin rhetoric to sneer and cast aspersions on those who themselves seemed to be Pope Boniface VIII's enemies, or at least were his perceived enemies. What does all this have to do with it? One more thing. Remember Brunetto and his works, the Tresor and the Tesaretto? And remember I told you that the Tresor was written in French? Mmm, not in vernacular Italian. What do these four have in common, according to Pizarre? They are all guilty of a rhetorical sin. Or, <laughs> to put it another way, they are all guilty of a sin against rhetoric. Priscian allowed Greek phrases into Latin. Accorso gave weight to papal letters rather than the great writings in Greek of the church fathers and the Greek New Testament. Andrea de Mozzi used rhetoric to malign the enemies of the Pope, and Brunetto forgot his own vernacular Italian to write in French. In other words, they're all guilty of a rhetorical sin or a sin against rhetoric by not using rhetoric properly. And let me point out one other thing just to drive this home. Inside of what's happening here, remember there's the fire falling like snowflakes? You know when else fire fell down like that? At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 of the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples, right? It comes down as these kind of flakes of fire that sit on top of their head, and then they speak in tongues in other people's languages. So the argument here would be this entire circle is a blasphemous inversion of Pentecost, and rhetoric is being warped by these figures for political gain, literary gain, for fame. It's being warped and not used properly. And Brunetto is the key figure here because he doesn't even write in his own vernacular at first. He writes the Tesaretto in Italian. But at first he writes in French, an unforgivable sin for Dante. At least this is Bezard's argument. You should know that once this bombshell book, Dante sous la pluie de feu, was published, suddenly became, uh, many scholars stepped up and now claim all kinds of machinations, turns, twists, and other um, influences to pick this up and shift it slightly so all these figures are guilty of some kind of political sin or using rhetoric for political purposes or certain church heresies that used rhetoric to shift church doctrine in non-orthodox ways. There's all kinds of scholars who have taken up Pesaro's argument and changed it in various ways, but 
I want to go back to the original one, which I just gave you, because it is the argument that these are not people here being punished for what I'm claiming, but rather sins uh, against rhetoric, against the proper use of rhetoric. I think it is a little bit, how do I say, it's a little bit against Occam's razor. It's a little bit too complicated for the passage. It seems like when you say Sodom, when you, especially in a medieval context, when you talk about sin stretched for evil flesh, it just seems the easiest answer is homosexuality. I should say one more thing about Sodom while I'm just sitting here for a second. Uh, much of the argument now turns on the fact that the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality, but rather it was the abuse of guests and the abrogation of the guest-host relationship, which is fundamental to civic society, which means that the, the sin of Sodom is the disgust disregard of the fundamentals of civic society and civil society and rhetoric is one of those fundamentals so it is a sin of sodom in which you're trying to strike at the bottom of how civic society is formed with language with host guest relationships etc again this seems to me to fall on occam's razor but listen i fundamentally know that many a person has slit her or his throat on Occam's razor. It's not necessarily the best guide to logical reasoning. The simplest answer isn't always the right one. So I wanted to do an episode of this podcast that essentially laid out the alternate reading or at least gave you an inkling of it. This got a little bit into the weeds for where this podcast usually sits. We're going to turn now to the 16th canto and more of who I'm going to tell you I think are the homosexuals in for various reasons. We're going to talk about that when we get to them. But before we get to the 16th canto of Inferno, up next on the next episode of this podcast, an interview with a dentista who is working on her PhD on the 10th canto of Inferno. She has got a lot to say about Guido Cavalcanti, about Ferranata, about everything that's going on back there in the 10th canto amongst the heretics. I think she's fabulous to bring on to this podcast because she's going to stretch us in various ways and stretch our understanding in da of Dante in various ways. So up next that interview with her and until then subscribe rate do all the things you need to do because i'm certainly trying to do all the things i need to do to give you a comprehensive understanding at least the groundwork for it of this most monumental work dante's comedy i'm mark scarborough this is walking with dante i'll see you next time